Hello, everybody, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. And we're your podcast of music discovery. Proud members, as always, of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source for music podcasts. Uh, that is the host of our program, as well as mm-hmm. our two spinoff podcasts, Audio Judo Does Jazz and Throughline. Those are both unique and separate podcasts from this one. Take original approaches to covering the world of jazz and also concept pieces. And you can find all three of those podcasts at the new Pantheon Podcast app, yeah. which is available to you in the App Store or the Play Store for Android users. From the app, you can interact with us on any of our social media accounts or link directly to our website. Uh, also, you can directly share links two episodes you think your friends might be interested in uh, right from the app. Yeah. So uh, it's pretty cool. Check that out. That's a pretty useful tool. I like that one. In addition to all that stuff, uh, we also have additional mini episodes that we call Judo Chops that aren't available through the app. In fact, the only way you can listen to those is how, Kyle? If you sign up to become a Patreon for us. Uh, we have three tiers of support. So the lowest tier is called Shout It Out Loud for $1 or Euro or Pound or Ruby or whatever your local currency is for uh, every month. You can help us keep making the podcast, and in return for that, we'll give you a shout-out at the end of every episode. Step up from that is the Front Row Seats tier. It's $5 a month. For that, you get a little extra. You get the shout-out by name at the end of every episode, two-day early access to full episodes most of the time, access to bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops that Matthew was just talking about, and occasional bonus little bits that we'll share, usually because we had to cut something out of an episode. Stepping up from that, if you really want to support the podcast and get a little something more in return, you can be a Backstage Pass tier member. It is $20 a month, but for that, you get the shout-out by name, two-day early access to full episodes, access to judo chat mini episodes, the bonus bits uh, that usually include farts and burps, plus a very special personalized gift after three months at that tier, and the big one, a chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo on the album of your choice. This benefit activates after one year of patronage at this tier and can only be activated once. However, it is a lot of fun. But true story. Yeah. We got to schedule uh we got to schedule one. Yeah, we do. Coming up pretty quickly here. Yeah. Yeah, so uh Matthew, uh, yeah. We hate it when our friends become successful. <laughs> and if they're no doubt, that makes it even worse. <laughs> What is that from? It's from a real big fish cover of a Morrissey song called We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice set. Yeah. That's I, good. I thought it might be. Yeah. But, uh, so this week's episode yeah. finds us back in the mid-90s. Last it time does. we were there was a few months ago when we talked about uh, the Radiohead, uh, Radiohead record, The Bends, uh, and it would be very difficult, though, to find two albums that sound as different as oh, that God, one yeah, it would. and the album we were going to talk about today angsty, complicated, noisy British alternative, and now bright California-like horn-drenched ska. (laughs) Um, Today we are talking about the 1995 album Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. 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 Do you pronounce the B or no? I do not doubt. Okay. But I'm also... Doubt. 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 Uh, People are surprised to hear uh, that this is actually the band's third record Mm -hmm. because neither one of the other two did any sort of significant sales until after this record blew up to massive proportions. Uh, The band came out of nowhere riding what uh, would come to be known as the third wave of ska. For a little background, ska is a musical style that originated like so many other musical styles in Jamaica. (laughs) What a surprise. In the 1950s and was the progenitor of styles like Rocksteady and Reggae. There were three notable periods of this music. The original style became popular in the 60s, produced bands like the Scatolites and Byron Lee and the Dragonairs. Uh, then there was a resurgence of the music in the late 70s, which became known as Two-Tone Ska, so named for the label started by the largest ska band at the time, The Specials. That band rose to relative stardom with their number one UK single, Ghost Town, which sounds like this. This town is coming like a ghost town. 
So their rise gave uh, an audience to other bands, primarily of British origin, uh, that played two-tone ska bands like Madness and the English Beat. It was Madness. Uh, and that style then died down for a while. And in uh, the late 80s came another resurgence, which is commonly known as the third wave. Bands like Fishbone, Less Than Jake, Real Big Fish, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Save S- Ferris. Sublime. Yeah. Right? All found success in the style between like 1988 and 1995. Uh, and firmly placed in that set, at least for this album and the follow-up was this band, No Doubt. Yeah. After the release of the next album, their style, mostly steered by the lead singer Gwen Stefani's exploding career, would change to a more definitive pop sound and leave ska behind for the most part. Yeah. Uh, And now that you have a little ska background, before we talk about this record, we should talk about No Doubt. Absolutely. I cannot believe they were originally formed in 1986. Yeah. I would never have guessed it took them nine years of, of playing local gigs in Southern California and building up in order to get to a point where they released Tragic Kingdom. I would not have guessed it was that long. It was a slog is what it was. The original lineup consisted of Eric Stefani on keyboards, uh, his sister Gwen Stefani on backing vocals, John Spence on lead vocals, Jerry McMahon on guitar, Chris Leal on bass, Chris Webb on drums, Gabriel Gonzalez on trumpet, Alan Mead on trumpet, and Tony Mead on saxophone. That is one thing that I do not miss talking about ska bands, the gigantic list of horn section people that you have to roll through, like this person and this person and this person and this person, this person on flugelhorn, this person on this, this person on that. Don't miss doing that. Quick count tells me that is nine people, Mm -hmm. and that's a lot of mouths to feed. It's a lot of You think about a band in that incarnation, like in high school in 1986, trying to book gigs. Yeah. Trying not to sound like just a bungle of noise because of all the competing instruments. And then trying to figure out how to make money if you do get a gig because you have to split it nine ways. Well, even more so. That sucks. Tony Canal met the band on one of their early shows and became their new bassist in 1987. And Paul Castley and Eric Carpenter joined the horn section in 1987 on trombone and saxophone, respectively. Even bigger. Now bringing it to 11. (laughs) (laughs) They played a graduation party in uh, the summer of 87, Mm -hmm. some of which of that can be seen on VH1's Behind the Music, which is quite fascinating. It's very interesting to see that, that it's it's literally shot with like a home video camera. Yeah. And it's like, what? First of all, that party looks amazing. It does look like (laughs) an amazing graduation party backyard graduation party and it's you've got no doubt playing like oh cool but you didn't know you didn't know i mean you had no doubt playing but you're like Eh, but still kind of bungly noise think about having been there that's a great story oh man in retrospect you're like well you know no doubt played at my graduation party yeah did they yeah yeah Really? No, they did. I promise. Uh, So in December of 87, uh, on the eve of their biggest gig at the Roxy for a bunch of record company executives, uh, lead singer John Spence took his own life and uh, the band immediately disbanded, Mm -hmm. uh, but decided then to regroup a few weeks later with Alan Mead taking over as the lead vocalist. And soon after that, Mead left the band, as people do, and Gwen took over on lead vocals. And at the same time, Tom Dumont, lead guitarist in a local heavy metal band called Rising, along with his sister. What? uh, So... what is with these guys and getting in bands with their sisters? I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know so that I could must be something in California band with my at the sister. time. It would be weird. But anyway, Tom Dumont joined No Doubt, replacing Jerry McMahon, and then Adrian Young would replace Chris Webb on drums early the following year. 1989, and the original core of the group was mostly set. By the way, Adrian Young at this point had the most limited amount of drum experience. And by limited, I mean none. (laughs) He had zero. He didn't know 
a damn thing what he was doing. He just liked performing and then just figured it out as he went along. He was just like, yeah, of course I can play the drums. And then it, sat that's down exactly and what he to said. Figure it out. Yeah, that's what he said. Like, what about an audition? Did you guys audition him? No. Yeah, no. So just- during this same time period, no doubt basically became a staple in that Southern California rock ska punk scene. They played gigs throughout the whole region for this entire time and started started to really develop some uh, a unique sound um, that was their own. It actually caught the, the ear of somebody at Interscope Records and they signed with them in 1990. Uh, they released their first self-titled album in 1982. It didn't sound anything like grunge, though, which had just exploded into the mainstream. Oops. And it wasn't supported by the label at all. Uh, it only sold 30,000 copies. That, no singles released at all. Yeah. Uh, and they still decided to do a tour mm-hmm. anyway, which Interscope refused to support. Yeah. Which is awesome. And the tour did not do well, uh, surprisingly. By the way, if you have one of those original 30,000 copies of that album, it's worth a little bit of money now. So Yeah, I'm sure it is. Keep it. Yeah, so the tour didn't go well. Uh, and Eric Stefani was kind of on again, off again at this point. He was yeah. quitting the band and rejoining it multiple times. Like, I quit. I'm back. Yeah. I quit. To make matters worse, the label was really unhappy with the initial results for their next album. So they assigned producer Matthew Wilder uh, to the project. However, the good news is nothing broke his stride. Oh, I knew you were going to go there. (laughs) Anybody that doesn't know who Matthew Wilder is, uh, he wrote a song called Break My Stride, which got to number two in 1984. the strangest dream <laughs> such a great song though it is is anything gonna break a your stride ain't nothing gonna slow me down oh, oh no no i got to keep on moving <laughs> oh, such a good song sorry yeah. so uh so yeah so uh and that did not sit well with eric stefani who did not like to re- relinquish control to outsiders at this point or any point so Eric stopped showing up for rehearsals uh, and ultimately quit the band, mm-hmm. going on to become an animator on The Simpsons. Yeah, which, you know, talk about failing upwards. Like, yeah, exactly. This was oh, right no. as The Simpsons was, you know, a meteoric rise in the mid-90s there to popularity. It's by pretty the, solid job. Yeah. I mean, if you could still have it, which is weird. You could still have a job you on The Simpsons. You could still have a job on The Simpsons. From 1992. Two or whatever. <laughs> That's nuts. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, Tony Canal, who at this point had been in a relationship with Gwen this entire time, mm-hmm. decided to end that seven-year relationship. So Interscope didn't know what to do with them. She's reeling. The band's in turmoil. So Interscope Records, we've talked about this uh, before, sublicensed their recording contract to a smaller label called Trauma Records. Uh, in the interim, they self-released another record called the Beacon Street Collection in 1995, which is basically just outtakes of recording sessions yeah. uh, they had done with Eric when he was still in the group. In these outtakes, you can hear uh, more ramped up, kind of grungier sounds, mm-hmm. apparently trying to fit in with the current style. As, as they would, and utilizing a lot of the metal expertise of Tom Dumont. And because that slight style shift, the album sold three times as many copies as their debut. Yeah. Almost 100,000 copies sold. And that basically served the purpose as their second record. But later that year came the mother of all albums, the one that struck just at the right time with just the right musical mix and just the right face, the album that we're going to talk about today, 1995's Tragic Kingdom. Yeah. So that album was uh, released on October 10th, 19. 
1995. It was produced, as we said, by Matthew Wilder. Includes a lot of playing from Eric Stefani, who at this point had left the band. Yeah. Gwen wanted to include a picture of Eric on the album cover, but the rest of the band was against it because he had left. So they uh, compromised by putting him on the cover, but facing the other direction. He's looking off into the distance. (laughs) So this record would see the release of seven singles. Right? Over three years. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Two of which would chart in the top 100, one getting to number one on one of the charts. The album itself would reach number one on the U.S. charts, earn several Grammy nominations, sell 16 million copies worldwide, including 10 million in the States, earning Diamond Award. Uh, It helped to get a slew of ska bands signed. Yeah, this album is often considered the beginning of ska's popularity. The third wave of ska was already kind of happening. Like you said, it was from the late 80s into the late 90s. Yeah, Fishbone, yeah, yeah. But by this point, it was kind of a make or break point. It was like, unless somebody breaks through to the mainstream, it's just going to fade away. And then along comes No Doubt, breaking through into the mainstream. And now all these other record labels are like, you know, get me ska bands. We need, this sounds great. People want to hear it. It was number one. We need to start pushing this. Yeah. And, um, oh shoot, I should have written down the quote and I ended up cutting it from my notes, but the lead singer from uh, Save Ferris mm. actually credits in a, an interview from 97, I want to say, in Billboard magazine. Uh, he talks about how w- if it were not for this No Doubt album, if it wasn't for Tragic Kingdom, none of those other ska bands would exist. Oh, that I believe I mean, that. they wouldn't be popular. They would have already disbanded and gone away. Yeah, because that was of, only two years after this. Some so. of their genre would have come up in, in its place. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you know, got a bunch of bands signed, changed the direction of music for several years, it launched the lead singer's career to massive heights for the next, well, I guess now, 27 years and still going strong. Uh, It put them on a world tour that lasted 27 months. (laughs) So just a short one then. And the public loved it. And yet, and yet, because the music industry is still filled with misogynistic asshats, it was not critically well received. David Frick, while generally liking the album, said that Don't Speak was irritating swill with high-pitched rippling from Gwen Stefani. I don't even know what that means. Rippling? What is rippling? Entertainment Weekly reporter said that the album could attribute its sales to Gwen Stefani's leggy, bleach-blonde calling card and concluded that sex still sells. Interesting. From Entertainment Weekly, <laughs> whose sole purpose of printing these days is to report on the Kardashians' sex lives. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Unusual. And of course, because what would a review be without talking about the moron that is Robert Christogau, <laughs> who said that... St- Stefani is hebephrenic, and the album is not as songful as its fun besotted partisans claim. Hebephrenic. That's just a word salad. Hebe- That's just So hebephrenia is a type of schizophrenia characterized by incoherence and delusions. Huh. Why? I'm telling you, this guy grinds my gears. <laughs> and I feel like Rolling Stone felt like they had to recognize it in the top 500 records of all time. And they just slipped it in at 441 yeah. because if they hadn't, they would have been called out. That list has multiple Shakira records, yeah. multiple T-Swift records. But this one, which has sold 16 million copies, is near the bottom, kind of like an afterthought. Do, do they listen to the music or? Well, I still think there's something going on there. A lot of people are really embarrassed that they listen to ska. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are really embarrassed that they went through that phase in the 90s where they were wearing the black and white checkered shoes and they would go skank in the pit. Oh, hell the, yeah, the man. Gotta go skank band. in the pit. You know, 
Dressed like a 50s rockabilly dude, you know. You gotta go skank into the beat. A lot of people are still very embarrassed by that period of their lives. And I think because of that, a lot of people are still not willing to look back and say, hey, actually, some of these bands were very musically talented. They sounded really good. And they brought something to the musical world that didn't exist before that was actually very popular at the time. So when do they get embarrassed that they're listening to, you know, Cardigan or whatever by (laughs) Taylor Swift? When does that happen? Is that 10 more years down the road? Is that that when we're embarrassed? Maybe. Hips don't lie, or like, are we? Well, when do we get sad about that? I think something else has happened too, in that uh, we have entered a post-embarrassment world. Oh, for God's sakes! I know. I'm sorry. I it, keep missing the bus on I these. I know. It's uh, because now, you know, in the '90s, in order to be part of something like this, you had to find a group of people in real life and actually go do something. And so the groups, <laughs> the groups had to be big enough that you could actually find them. So when ska became popular, it was a big group. I mean, I, I was part of it in yeah. my late teens. I went to, I actually went to the biggest concert I've ever been to was a uh, Scott summit here in Las Vegas in 90. Yeah, it had to be 2000, 2001, maybe. Yeah. I always dug it. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm a huge Scott fan. Yeah. It's, it's fun from fishbone on. And that's the thing. And then, and that's like the next part of my note here is you take a second to think kind of where we are in mus- musical landscape. We're coming off of four years or so of grunge domination. And that domination was primarily the world of men. Yeah. Men's music, angsty, broody, morose. And I think people were fucking tired of it, but I don't think people were quite ready for some of the rockier stuff to be over with yeah. yet. So here comes Alanis and Gwen with two distinctly different styles, but both with unique power and strength. And this was their moment. And I think it that's that critical juncture right at that moment that when this happened, I mean, it landed in a place where it could only have occurred at that particular moment in musical yeah. time. So you want to talk about the uh, album artwork? For yeah, me? let's do it. So the name of the album, uh, pretty obviously a reference to the uh, to Disneyland's The Magic Kingdom what? Uh, subtitle. It is? Yeah. Oh. Uh, apparently credited, though, to Tom Dumont's seventh grade teacher, who used to call it the Tragic Kingdom. <laughs> Funnily enough, no doubt actually played Grad Night at Disneyland June 15th, 1995. <laughs> so just a few months before this album came out, which I think is great. Album photography and portraits were taken by photographer Daniel Arsenault. Uh, additional photography by Shelley Robertson and Patrick Miller. Uh, the design and creative direction is by a company called Morbido Bizarro. Morbido Bizarro? Morbido slash Bizarro. Which is great. Bizarre. So the cover is actually designed to look like an advertisement for an orange company. Mm-hmm. Since they're from Orange County, it makes sense. Yes. Uh, but kind of a failed orange company. Uh, it's this blue on blue diamond pattern in the background with a gold look frame around it. Uh, in the middle is a circle with a photograph in it. Gwen is featured in the foreground, standing outside and in front of the circle with the rest of the band members uh, standing inside an orange grove with a dead orange tree, but with fake oranges hanging on it. Mm-hmm. So much orange. Uh, like you said, Eric is there, but he's kind of standing a little bit off to the side and looking out of the picture frame, whereas everybody else is looking at the camera. Um, There's some cartoon flies depicted on the cover and in the bottom right corner, three rotten oranges. No Mm. doubt is written across the top and Tragic Kingdom at an angle on the lower right, just above the oranges. There's also some fun little subtitles on there. Bought and sold out in the USA. Nice. (laughs) Sun-pissed groves, Anaheim, (laughs) California. (laughs) Uh, And below the band name, it says the words brand. So it's no doubt brand. Ooh. Yeah. Because it isn't supposed to be an advertisement. Yeah. Yeah. The um, the album book has uh, all the lyrics and everything in it, but it also has a whole bunch of pictures of them taken in cornfields and orange groves throughout Southern California. The back has the band standing with a shopping cart full of oranges at a drive-in movie theater watching a movie where someone steps on an orange. So many orange references. So many oranges. 
And the red dress that Gwen is wearing on yes. the cover was uh, loaned to the Hard Rock Cafe for a while, appraised at like five grand, and uh, then it was stolen and nobody knows where it is. Yeah. So if you are out there listening and you have that dress, get in touch. Right? So I've loved this record since it first came out. Like I mentioned a second ago, I, like a lot of people, was sick of grunge by this time, was looking for music that was more fun, energetic and fun. I was 23 when this record came out. I had been married for about a year and we were living in Denver and just bought our first house and not quite expecting our first child. But we were, you know, newlyweds making our first young friends and we wanted to have fun and this music fit the bill much more appropriately than sitting around and listening to Alice in Chains. <laughs> so uh, first time I heard this record, I, got, I was in my friend's basement and he, he always seemed to know about popular music right before it got popular. <laughs> I love those people. And this was one of those records that he absolutely nailed. So thanks, H, if you're listening. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So you want to take a I, I you do want to say well, uh, yeah. one other thing I want to say. This kind of, to me, is a little bit of a curveball from you. I would not have expected this album to be one that you're like, yeah, I love this album. Really? And totally, yeah. <laughs> it just, it feels to me like just in our discussions about music and and what we talk about usually on the podcast and everything, yeah. I would have 100% guessed like, oh yeah, Matthew is one of those people who completely skipped the ska, yeah. like, you know, revival thing that happened, you, you know, early stuff in the late 80s maybe, but the late 90s thing, I figured you would have totally skipped over this in favor of other bands. But oh, I used to listen I'm to real- happy. Yeah. I used to listen to Real Big Fish on the way to work like all oh, yeah. the time, especially because I was leaving for work at like 5.15 in the morning <laughs> and I just needed, you need that, that pick punch up. in the face. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now I can go to work. Right. Yeah. I had like a 40 minute drive. No, but it's, I'm glad we're talking about this because I actually really like this album a lot. And it's one, this is another one of those albums that I forget about it for years at a time. And then suddenly somebody's like, no doubt. And I'm like, oh yeah, I should listen to Tragic Kingdom. Well, and then I listen to it. And you're like, well, this is a really good album. Well, and you then, drive to work and you're like, Gwen Stefani's playing at Planet Hollywood. What? Yeah. Like, huh, you should probably listen to that. Still has oranges in the advertisements, Still has by the way. Oranges. I see it all the time here in Vegas, and there's still oranges in the advertisements. So <laughs> good for them for picking a theme and sticking with it. You stuck with it, all right. Yeah, let's, uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and do a track by track. Track by track. Spiderwebs. Spooky. Right? Opening track from the record. Second single from it, written by Gwen and bassist Tony Canal, uh, and assumed that it was about their breakup, as a lot of this album is. Mm -hmm. But this one uh, wasn't. No. Uh, it was about a, another dude that had been calling Gwen at all hours of the night and uh, reciting bad poetry that he had written to her for hours. Yeah. Basically phone stalking her. In a video that uh, is linked from Song Facts talking about that exact thing, Gwen had this to say, quote, but there was this one guy and he used to call me in the middle of the night and try to sing me poetry on the phone or play acoustic guitar for, for me for 15 minutes. I didn't know how to get off the phone. Giving this guy my number was the biggest regret of my life. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So Supposedly, too, only she and Tony know who this guy is. She said that multiple times over the years. Yeah. But by this point, that guy has to know. That guy has to know, right? If it's somebody oh, he has who's to following know it's her and like... He, yes. I would say he would have to know that it was him. So if you're out there, guy, get in touch. We want to interview We want to talk to you, guy. Guy get, who called we, Gwen. We will listen to some of your poetry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we might give you a burner phone number, but we will listen to some of your exactly. poetry. So, uh, and this is before cell phones were on omnipresent. Yeah. So she had to screen his phone calls. You remember answering machines, Matthew? Right. I do. Uh, it was, as she says in the song, a telephonic invasion. <laughs> I love that line. But Kyle, what's a telephone? <laughs> 
What is, what is it? What is a telephone? telephone? So Matthew, telephones used to be hardwired and you had to use them around your house only. What's the tele part? I don't tele? get it. Don't you just say phone? It's a phone. It's a phone? It's a telephone. I don't know what the tele part means. Remote maybe? Oh, I got no I don't idea. Know. So what I love about this song is that it really is truly ska. It goes through these many tempo changes from that opening uh, horn heavy part to the quick kind of frenetic parts of the chorus. It's fun. This is what it's supposed to be. It sounds yeah. like this. Side note, this uh, remains one of the only songs that I have ever seen my wife perform uh, in karaoke for. Really? Yeah, so that's Ooh, fun. I could see how they're doing this. Uh, down in the islands. It took yeah. a bunch of rum, but we got it done. <laughs> this is a, a song, definitely listen to this with headphones on at some point in your life. Yeah. I had no idea. There's a lot of weird little electronic sounds and stuff that happen in the background. You don't get that on like the radio or through speakers yeah, unless the they're really good speakers. Bleepy blippies and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I had no idea they were there until listening to it for this episode. And I was like, is this a remix or? Is this like a, a reissue of the song? No, it's the original. That's that's awesome. It did get up to number five on the modern rock chart. Mm -hmm. Made it to number 18 on the Billboard Airplay chart. That's yeah. so many charts. You want to know why it was on the Billboard Airplay chart, though, and not the Billboard Top 100 chart? No. Because the yes. single was not released in the U.S. So oh. we said there were seven singles released for this album, yes. right? Only a certain number of them were released in the U.S. Right. at the time that the album came out. So because of that, because of the rules at the time, when it was, it was, it's funky. If it was on the album and there was no single released, it could only be on the airplay charts. It couldn't oh. be anywhere else. So then later on, when it came back around, it got to, what did you say? Number five on the charts? Uh, modern rock charts, modern but rock then charts. it got yeah. number 11 on the top 40. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when they released it several years later as a single. As a single, right. It's such a stupid and, game, uh, but. <laughs> it is. Number 16 on the UK singles yeah. chart as well. And they played the song at the 99, 1997 Grammy Awards uh, when they were nominated for yeah. Best New Artist, even though their debut album came out five years previous. Uh, they did not win. They lost to Leanne Rimes. Mm -hmm. oh, what are you going to do? Uh, I love this song, though, for, for its musicality. Uh, we have covered many times that I, I do not care for brass, typically in rock music. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Scott is the exception for me and it because okay. it works wonderfully. Uh, and what's that in this song? It's a guest artist, isn't it? Yeah. Stephen Perkins makes an appearance on the steel drums in the song. Perkins, yeah. at that point, was the drummer for Jane's Addiction. So that's all right. Actually, he may have already left Jane's Addiction. Would you say he was recovering from Jane's Addiction? <laughs> Doesn't everybody? <laughs> oh. Terrible. Oh, that it was bad. Excuse me, mister. What? No, that's the name of the next song. Oh. Fourth single off the album, mm -hmm. released almost 10 full months after the release of the record. Uh, it didn't have much impact on the charts, barely cracking the top 40 of the alternative charts in the US and Canada, but it peaked at number 11 in the hotbed of alternative radio, New, New Zealand. Zealand. 
<laughs> this, like many of the songs on the record, really focus on Gwen trying to get the attention of a man. I mean, you know, like most albums, I like to spend quite a bit of time focusing on the lyrics, trying to explore uh, when there's really good writing and ideas. And this record doesn't fall into the category necessarily of well thought out lyrics, but they are fun. Uh, and that's really what I was looking for at the time. They're fun lyrics. And what Gwen is really good at, though, is the internal rhyming schemes within lines. Yeah. Uh, instead of always rhyming the last word of a phrase, like a lot of rock songs, she uses uh, some elements of rap rhyming, uh, like this line, oh, for most, love comes free. They don't pay the high cost of mental custody. I'll pay bail for a guarantee what makes space for me in the time yet to be. So there's a lot of internal stuff. But I really go back to this record for the music. And this song is a prime example of why. Besides a super fast ska beat, it has this almost Dixieland-like bridge to it. Yeah. Uh, no doubt. Ha! No <laughs> doubt <laughs> the influence of Eric Stefani before he left the band. Check this part out here. So supposedly, mm. there's a rumor that they recorded a country version of this when they were in the studio that has never been released. <sighs> How true that is, I, I only found it in, in like two different spots. So there's it's a little bit, but I'm wondering if those build off one another. You got to read, so, yeah, you, you got to release it. That would be cool. But the minute you were like, there's that sort of, you know, like uh, honky tonk kind of piano yeah. going on there and everything. I was like, oh yeah, that would fit even more so that they were inspired by that to do the whole song as a country song. So no, the album's 30th anniversary is what, three three years away? Mm, yeah. All right, just let's go ahead and release it then. Right. Uh, it's a great playing. It's a great concept. Uh, and one more thing I think I'll probably come back to quite a bit on this record is Tom Dumont. Mm. Um, there's something about his playing that is super unique. And I think he plays with a little bit more distortion than a lot of the ska players do. And it makes it stand out. Could definitely hear that. Uh, bands like Fishbone also utilize that distortion. But unlike No Doubt, you don't get the clean and distorted guitars in the same song. When Fishbone plays a ska song, it's generally clean guitars. And they switch to kind of a metal sound. Yeah, There's distorted guitars. Uh, and I think that's what really sets is playing apart from a lot of the ska counterparts as he's kind of blends those two together. Very interesting. I like that this is kind of the opposite of the first song as well. In the first song, it's a guy trying to get the attention of a girl. And then in this song, it's a girl trying to get the attention of a guy. Ah. Uh, this is also no doubt performed this song on Saturday Night Live in December 1996, uh, along with another song from this album that we'll get to in a bit. Yeah. Just a girl? Just a girl. It's kind of the song that exploded them out onto the world. Yeah. First single from the record peaked at number 23 on the Billboard Top 100. Uh, and if you're talking about the signature song for the band, it would be hard to choose between this one, Spiderwebs, and Don't Speak. Yeah. Kind of, I feel like this is the song that opened the door for the dinner party. And Spiderwebs set the table and Don't Speak is when the feast was kind of presented Ooh, for the whole I thing. I like that. Right? This is the first song that Gwen wrote without the assistance of her brother Eric as he had just left the band. And the song is actually about Gwen's father. Mm -hmm. Apparently her parents were very strict. 
uh, and he didn't take too kindly to her driving alone to uh, Tony Cannell's house after dark, <laughs> which little did she know that he had she had been dating him for seven years at this point. <laughs> so maybe she'd be a little more aware. <laughs> right. I think that it's very interesting that so many people took this song at face value when they heard it and they're like, oh, wow, yeah. this is really like an anti-women song. And it's like, no, she's being sarcastic. And she really clearly lays out that she's being sarcastic, being sarcastic throughout the yeah. song. But apparently Gwen Stefani has been asked in like every interview ever, like, so were you being serious or is that sarcastic? And she got so frustrated. She one time blew up and she's like, of course it's fucking sarcastic. What are you dumb? <laughs> That's a good answer. Right? But the, it's the music that sets it apart. The opening to the song is extremely recognizable with the discord, uh, distorted ska guitar line by Tom Dumont. It sounds like this. Take this pink ribbon off my eyes. I'm exposed and it's no big Another big TV performance with this one was their first late night performance on Conan O'Brien on January 30th, 1996. Mm-hmm. They did this song. It's a really good video if you want to go check it out. It's oh, it's excellent. Yeah. They also performed it at the 2003 Super Bowl halftime yeah. show. And this was kind of the beginning of the end for the band on a micro level. This was a band in which the bass player and drummer often performed shows totally naked. <laughs> and when the song hit, all anyone wanted to talk about was Gwen. Gwen yeah. in the video. Gwen in the outfit, all Gwen. Uh, And for a while, the band pushed back from that and declared themselves all equals. But more and more people only wanted to interview Gwen. And it developed that schism slowly, but surely that was going to happen. But it's a strong song by an equally strong woman. And this would also be, I think, the first time I ever saw a non-Indian woman wearing a bindi. And I thought maybe it was some kind of cultural appropriation at the time, and perhaps it still is. But I've researched it. Apparently, anyone can wear one. It isn't just limited to the Indian culture. You can wear one. It's not. It's not appropriating Indian culture if you wear or Hindi culture if you wear a bindi. So well, good news. Yeah, I I needed to clear that up because when I'm watching, I'm like, should she be wearing that? (laughs) But uh, yeah, are you you, happy now? I'm happy now. Are you happy now? I'm happy now. Sixth single released from the record. Sixth, almost one full year after the release of the album. Didn't chart here in the states, but made it to uh, 132 in Australia. It's a big down under crowd. Yeah. Uh, and while "Don't Speak" is a uh, poignant breakup song with all the pent up emotions and just wanting it to be over, this is the most scathing of the songs directed squarely at Tony Cano. Oh yeah. But kudos to him because he was actually one of the co-writers of the song. Uh, so he was able to uh, compartmentalize whatever was going, you know, whatever was going on and not notice it. In fact, go ahead. Oh, I say it's super interesting to me that both he and Gwen stayed in the band and they continued having a working relationship for years afterwards. It's kind of like- It was uh, very positive. Well, it's kind of uh, like Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Not necessarily yeah. a positive outcome, but they did stay in the band yeah. for periods and then left and then came back and then left and then. 
then came back and then left and then came back. Uh, Tony didn't even know. He said he didn't even know this song was about him until he heard the song on the radio. And at the end of it, the DJ said, take that, Tony. <laughs> so Gwen has called this the perfect breakup song and said that it was absolutely meant to be painful. I will say that the song has some of the best lyrical moments on the record. Uh, lines like this are superb. The uncertainty you had of me brought clouded, shady company. The tenderness habitual, a self-fading or seldom fading ritual. Ooh. Musically, it's excellent. And we get some great, great melody lines. And this is what the song sounds like. Yeah, I also think this song benefits from some really great production by Matthew Wilder. Yeah. Uh, the choice to multi-track her vocals as background singers and then split them into both sides is very effective. Makes the song a lot thicker in places. I think that's uh, it's excellent. <laughs> I uh, would agree. Different people? Different people. Apparently the first song Gwen ever wrote. Uh, yeah. She told the Daily Telegraph in November 2012, quote, Before that, there was nothing I was good at. And all of a sudden, here was something I felt really passionate about. I remember my dad listening to the first songs that we recorded on his way to, into work and him saying, this is really good. You need to keep doing it. Oh, see? So disciplinarian, but still supportive. Still supportive. And uh, I, I love this song. I think it's excellent. Uh, some lyrics for you. He and she, two different people with two separate lives. And you put the two together, you get a spectacular surprise because one can teach the other one what she doesn't know while the other still while still the other fills a place inside he never knew had room to grow those lyrics are so good and spot yeah. on and as a result surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly this is one of former president barack obama's very favorite songs yeah. uh, I, I just learned that the other day that's weird but great right and gwen was completely surprised by that saying that the lyrics are really naive uh, and maybe they are to some degree but i think i would call them innocent instead of naive yeah i think uh, naive implies some level of immaturity and I don't think these lyrics are immature at all they're just kind of sweet and innocent but the real star of the song is Tony Cannell and that fantastic moving bass line oh, it yeah. really is the defining part of the song for me and here's a little section of it right here It's bouncy. It is. It's I love such you. A, it's such a positive, upbeat song in the middle of this album about breaking up. Yeah, but how do you... <laughs> 
There's a lot of songs on here about breaking up. How yeah. do you just not bounce along to it? It's great. Tony Canal, I mean, we talk about him. Uh, was born in England, moved to California when he was 11, settling in Anaheim. Has been with No Doubt since 1987. Uh, he also uh, has produced and written songs for Pink and Weezer, as well as being in another band with AFI frontman Davey Havoc called uh, Dream Car. Oh, yeah. If you haven't heard that yet, check that album out. It's very good. It has an 80s dark kind of alternative vibe to it. It's really cool. Dream Car. It's cool. Hey, you. Whoa. It's got an exclamation mark. You have to pronounce uh, it that way. Yeah, let me, bro. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. The song was released as a single on the Dutch charts. Only in the Netherlands. Right. Yeah. Getting up to number 51 over there. So yay, Netherlands. Right. Another uh, relationship song on an album loaded with songs uh, just like that. Yeah. Interesting sitar playing here by Aloke Dasgupta. Well pronounced. There you go. Aloke is an Indian-born musician who lives in Torrance, California. Uh, he's played with George Harris and the Rolling Stones and the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. And they so all play with George Harrison? Every, well, I think there's a legal requirement if you pick up a sitar. sitar you have a, had to play with George Harrison. In order to make any money, you have to go play with George Harrison. So <laughs> what's going to happen is when George Harrison sadly passes away at some future he did. point. Oh, well, He's been dead for 20 years. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was. That's why of, there are no new sitar players. I was thinking of Paul McCartney. I apologize. Uh, but <laughs> there George, are no new exactly. Ones. There are no more new ones. So we have a limited supply of sitar players. Exactly. That's why. Uh, what's his name? Ravi Shankar. Yeah. He's 114 years old. Yeah. He's gonna live forever. You can't get. Actually, you got to pick him. You think, can't get rid of him. I think Ravi Shankar passed away a few years. Oh, ago. Oh crap! Too, now what do we got? Like three left? I guess. Shit. But uh, yeah, another great song about empowering uh, strong women to fight back against the stereotypes that society imposes on them. Whoa. Deep, Whoa. The presence of the uh, sitar, as we forementioned sitar, kind of changes the overall sound of the song, makes it a little psychedelic at the beginning, yeah. as it usually does. A sitar, we put a sitar in a song, you're like immediately like, oh, someone dropped acid. <laughs> but check out this uh, beginning right here. This song also has one of the one of those strange misheard lines in it, hmm. uh, and I, I didn't I failed to play the clip long enough, but um, I didn't understand until I looked at the lyric sheet. The chorus is just like a Ken and Barbie doll. She's saying just like a Ken and Barbie doll. Okay, but I have no idea. Like that is not even close to what I heard. I can't even tell you what I actually <laughs> thought the lyrics were because I thought it was just like gobbledygook to me. It was I'm like what is this? Like I can't understand it. I had to look. And when I looked at the lyric sheet, I'm like, really? Oh. That is not at all what I heard. Huh. Uh, it's a pretty good song, uh, but this record is so loaded. 14 songs. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff in the middle. And I, I'm going to come back to this, that there is quite a bit of stuff that I think you could have edited out mm -hmm. and made an even more impactful record. I think as we get towards the back part of the record, yeah. there's just a lot of uh, bloatedness. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, but it's still, I mean, it doesn't detract from the album. It's just uh, there's a lot of stuff to navigate, which yeah. is much easier now with the digital sources you could just well, I don't want to listen to this one. yep so <laughs> do not play do not play do not play <laughs> so the Done. Cl the climb no 
This is not the Miley Cyrus song of the same yeah. name. Uh, they are both original compositions, while their subject matter is similar. This is one of only two songs in the record that was completely written by Eric Stefani, and also the longest song on the album, clocking in at over six and a half minutes. And not surprisingly, the song is keyboard heavy, almost kind of has a bit of a blues feel to it, and probably meant to be the centerpiece of the record, because yeah. if we're still taking into account, are you writing a record with the intention of vinyl or cassette or whatever you do plan for the wine? down and the ramp back up yeah so i i feel like this song was supposed to be part of something bigger Mm. i don't know if that makes sense but i feel like this was something that he had other ideas that would have like you said this was supposed to be a centerpiece that should have been surrounded by other stuff it almost feels like a lounge song to me Mm. okay i feel like he had more plans here and he kind of took them all and crammed what he had together into this one song and it it feels to me like it have should have a lot leading into it and a lot coming back out of it that's not there. It feels very musically. Musically, okay. It doesn't feel like it belongs on this album. It's a good song, but I see it. I kind of yeah, I'm kind of there with you because I was talking about you know cassettes and record. If you listen to this song uh, in the context of the record, and you listen to it as if this was closing out a side of a record, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound as bloated. I think as as I would think as one continuous 14 tracks in a row. Yeah, but if you listen to this completely out of context as a one off on like Spotify, you're going to be bored or confused about its relevance to the rest of the record. Oh, absolutely. But I guess in the middle, it kind of works. But I understand it, it, it goes on for quite a while. Yeah. It sounds like this. Yes, that is a Mellotron. Mm. I don't mind the song when it's kind of taken as a whole, but I do think it could have benefited from a little editing. Shave a minute off, and I think it works quite a bit better. Uh, but maybe they felt they owed it to Eric uh, to play the whole thing since he had left the band. It's hard that's, to say. That's a strong possibility. I like this, play it and kind of like a, a goodbye yeah. sort of thing. So, uh, 16. This one's a little bit heavier than everything else on this album. Kind of confused about it. Is she trying to write a punk song with this really bright bubblegum pop sound to it? Because that's what it feels like. Yeah. It's a very rebellious song about someone turning 16 and their parents not uh, getting them. And the trope that parents don't think that teenagers you know, have a soul. I'm not sure how long these lyrics have been laying around because <laughs> uh, when she recorded it, she was already in her mid-20s. Yeah. It's a puberty song and it's a pretty surfacey one at that. It is not one of my favorite songs on the record. It is one of those filler songs that I could do without. But the music is all right because the musicians are really good. Um, I like the guttural sound at the beginning, uh, although the uh, B3 and the Hammond at this point are getting a little overused. <laughs> um, but that's a primary instrument and, and I understand it. And that's part of the problem I have. I think when you get 14 songs in yeah. and you've essentially been using the same elements and the songs aren't that much different, like in a live setting, if you're pulling this out of context and seeing a concert and this is you know, interspersed with a, a song from, you know, Return of Saturn. And this is, you know, you're not yeah. bookending it with other songs from the record. That I think it works a, a lot better. To them. That would make a lot of sense. Uh, well, it sounds like this. 
not like the term body in bloom. <laughs> Just, uh, You're trying to say that's, that that it, line doesn't work for you? Here's the thing. If it's a 16-year-old girl singing to a bunch of other teenagers, that line is fine. If it's anyone older than that singing to anyone else, that line... <laughs> it just Body in bloom you don't care yeah. for. Uh, no, it sounds uh, like something that should be in one of those like movies that they show 10-year-old girls. <laughs> you, your body, and you. It's a film strip. It's a film strip. <laughs> your body and you. Uh, but the good news is, is that it leads into the one, one of the best songs on the record. Yeah. Sunday Morning. This is a great song. Releases a fifth single off the record, and while it did not chart, I feel like it should have. Mm. It's a great song. It's another breakup song. Gwen is relishing the fact that her ex now wants her back, and she has the upper hand. She can watch him beg and grovel, and perhaps she can cause some of the heartache in return that he gave to her. Very mature point of view. Yeah. Uh, ironically, although this song is all about him and took him to task for the breakup, <laughs> it is Tony Canal's favorite song on the record. Yeah, he said so in a 1997 role. Stone interview. He was like, yeah, that's my favorite song on the whole album. <laughs> but it makes sense because it's a great, it's a yeah. great song. Everything comes together. The music, the lyrics, the sentiment, the production, everything comes together. Yeah. And who would have thought a song about a breakup on this album, right? Right. I, I mean, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, me either. But it sounds like this. more like old school ska song mm -hmm. just even the beat the bass line everything about it is just more old school and i love it changing tempos multiple times yeah. love it that whole thank you you are the parasite part in the middle <laughs> she's having her say and strangely i feel like every song that mentions sunday morning in it is a pretty good song so easy like sunday morning by mm -hmm. the commodores and lionel richie and then you have sunday morning by maroon five on their debut album songs about jane which is the only album of theirs that i will actually sit and listen to uh, and there's also Sunday Morning Coming Down by the late Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson, which is an excellent song as well. So something about that day lends itself to really good songs. It's weird. Hmm. I'd like to put a uh, chart together. Yeah. Or maybe do an episode we all should, about Sunday we morning. Do Sunday morning episode. Sunday morning episode. What we should do is get together and have some brunch. Yeah. On a Sunday morning and then record a Sunday morning episode all about Sunday morning songs. Should we, should we live stream it? Yeah, sure. That'd be awesome. Yeah, live stream it. on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Let's do it sometime. Over brunch. I like that idea like mimosas yeah yeah should do that sometime let's do it uh but don't speak oh during the whole episode or yeah you know don't yeah, so it's don't. just gonna be us silently drinking and mimosas and eggs benedict yeah just perfect mm, just. i love it <laughs> uh don't speak 
Yeah, it's the song that really defined them. Yeah, and another breakup song. What? But it didn't start out that way. Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, who would have who would have guessed? But it started out as a love song, uh, and then after the breakup, Gwen and Eric sort of retooled it a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah. Matthew Wilder really re- he encouraged rewrites oh, yeah. uh, and tried to get Gwen to channel more of her life into these songs, turning it into a breakup song yeah. of the highest order. It became the most played song on American radio in 1996. And while it was not released as a commercial single, as you mentioned before, therefore ineligible for the Hot 100, it charted on the Airplay chart and was number one for 16 non-consecutive weeks, a record at the time. I think that's the long way of saying that the song was everywhere during the summer of 1996. (laughs) It was was everywhere. Uh, And this song spurred their Grammy nominations, as well as several MTV Music Award nominations, secured a performance on SNL. Uh, And it really is a a sad song, but it's a great, great song. Uh, And here's a piece right here. So I think one of the most unique things about this song is that Spanish guitar by Tom Dumont. Oh, oh my, my God. God. I wrote the same goddamn it, thing. It, it is such a, a hook for this song. It's so unique and different from everything on this album and a lot of stuff that was on the radio at the time when this came out that it really draws you in because like, ooh, what is this? Yeah. What I thought was very interesting. There's a nice solo in here that he plays on the Spanish guitar. Yeah. It was actually chopped up from six solos six that he did solos. in the studio. And he said in an interview, he's like... I know that real guitar players would hate the way that I did this because not only did I chop it up from a bunch of other solos, I used a guitar pick while I was playing Spanish guitar, oh. which is forbidden. <laughs> and I was like, that's awesome. That's a, essentially what I wrote about was... Oh, there you go. Because it fits so perfectly in a clashing style. Yeah. Because you have a, a straightforward kind of rock song with this flamenco-like uh, guitar, very delicately played, uh, and it's just the right element. And uh, my opinion that Tom Dumont is a guitar player that should be talked about a lot more often than he is. He's very innovative for music that is generally regarded not as innovative. Uh, And he uses different tones, textures. I think he's super creative. So uh, I think we should get some more love uh, for Tom Dumont Music World. Why don't you wake up, people? He's uh, You you can do it. I can do it? No, the music world can do it. Oh. But also the next song is called You Can Do It. And now we kind of get to this this bloated four song finish. It's a funk song. It is a funk song, <laughs> but it's uh, I, is it funk or is it disco? It may be a little bit of both. But I did write it's a little bit of a nice change of pace. But what the hell is it doing on this album? And that's uh, this this four song finish. It kind of detracts from the whole album for me. Uh, we're going to talk about it anyway. So I felt like you stepped right back into the seventies, mm-hmm. the disco era. I think it's an interesting experiment. It's a little heavy handed. Full confession, I hate most of the disco era. Fair enough. Um, there are some parts that are better than others, some musicians that are better than others, some songwriters that are better than others. But I like the guitar again. Uh, he doesn't fall back into the familiar uh, upstrum, which is very prevalent in ska. But if there is a star of the song, it is the muted trumpet solo. Mm. And it sounds like this.
I know you can. That's sad. So that trumpet solo played by a trumpet player, Les Lovett, mm-hmm. uh, not Lyle Lovett, Les Lovett. And he has had a very successful career uh, playing for Herbie Hancock and Brian Setzer. Uh, and there's something about a muted trumpet solo that I find interesting. Yeah. What's really interesting to me, that the trumpet sound in this whole song absolutely reminds me. Have you ever heard Miles Davis's last album, Doobop? Doobop. I don't know what to say about that album, but the horn throughout that whole thing sounds like this. It is just an absolute muted... That is the sound I completely associate with that album. And whenever uh, I hear it elsewhere, I'm like, oh, and now I'm reminded of Miles Davis's. If you want, I can get Chris on the album. horn. He could probably tell us about it. Oh, I'm sure he could. But uh, that's for a future <laughs> Audio Judo Does Jazz episode. I love that trumpet sound, that sound. And maybe it's because uh, in all my years of playing around trumpet players in high school and slightly beyond, I never heard anyone play that right with a mute. <laughs> uh, it always sounded like you were choking something. <laughs> so to hear it played correctly is like, ah, ah. <laughs> That's how it sounded instead of, I don't know how to use this. Yeah, then don't use it. Mr. Stephanopoulos, how do I use this mute? Just stick it in the hole and then blow. Oh my God, why are you, stop talking. Uh, world, World go round. Does it? That's world go round, not world go around, because it's catchier that way. Right. With an apostrophe. This is almost a country song on here. So we just went from funk to country, and it's got some weird bluesy undertones. Again, I'm not sure what to say about this song. It is definitely a song on the album. (laughs) I don't know. Again, right? It's not a bad song. Yeah. But this album would have been so perfect if you would have ended it right after Don't Speak. You you didn't need all these other things. Yeah. That being said, you know, because I'm still going to talk about it, the the groove is really good for a song you didn't need. Uh, and I think it's cute that she pokes fun at herself in the lyrics about the lyrics. Yeah. At one point, she says degradation and immediately follows that with, oh, big word. <laughs> and this is what that sound, this is what the song sounds like. I think it is interesting to note how many of these songs really rely on horns to fill out their sound and composition, and then how quickly they abandon that in their career. Yeah. While the follow-up uh, album, Return to Saturn, did have several songs with horns, they were not as prominent, and uh, they wrote songs starting on that album that de- didn't necessarily need them anymore. Yeah. And that's unfortunate, but the music land, you know, the world was changing, and and uh, she was- Everybody was embarrassed of ska. And that star was rising, and more, <laughs> more pop songs sounds were coming. So it definitely is a song on this album. Matthew, can we please end it on this? <laughs> because we didn't already have a glut of breakup songs on this right. record, we get another one for the heck of it. I wish they would have uh, taken the title as advice. Yeah. Ended on this or better yet, ended three songs ago. Yeah. 
You see, in the past, I had a dream, a fantasy. I thought we would last become a little family. And yes, while I do enjoy your rhyming scheme, Gwen, you've already done this and you're kind of stretching it out uh, a little bit. But the guitar part is pretty good. And the rest of the song just doesn't really come together. It's a bit of a struggle. And give it a listen right here. So let me be clear here. I love this record, but this is not one of the reasons why. <laughs> but I do love it. I will say about this song, I do love the idea of somebody exploring that thing that happens to people over and over and over again in all their relationships, where as soon as you meet somebody, you start to build a fantasy off of it. You say, well, what happens if we know each other in five years, in 10 years? What happens if this relationship goes somewhere? What happens if we end up getting married and having kids and having a house and moving to you know Florida and having a retiring and having a life that. together. Like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. But what happens when all that happens? And then when you break up, you have to shatter all those dreams. You have to kill that fantasy and then start over from scratch start with all a completely over. new one. Like that's a very, a very, uh, it's something that I know happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's a really common thing, but at the same time, it's something that I don't think gets talked about incredibly frequently. Agreed. I, I, I would buy that. So uh tragic kingdom, tragic kingdom. This song begins with something that is so familiar to a lot of people from Southern California who grew up going to Disneyland over and over and over again throughout the summers. The sounds of people waiting in line for a ride and then over the PA, remain seated, please. Permit ser sentado, por favor. <laughs> you know what that is? Remain seated, please, in Spanish? Yeah, well, yeah, that. Yeah. But I mean, do you know where that's from? Remain seated, please. Permanecer sentados, por favor. Is it from Disneyland? It is from Disneyland. It's from the Matterhorn. Ah. When you're waiting in line to get on the Matterhorn, that happens over and over again. And that voice is Jack Wagner. Uh, he's known as the voice of Disneyland. Huh. He did a whole bunch of recording work throughout the years for announcements, rides, uh, all kinds of little, you know, like, ladies and gentlemen, the parade is starting in 10 minutes, stuff like that. Oh. He was the voice that did all of Interesting. that. Interesting. So if you ever watch like old Disney specials or you're ever in the park, you hear his voice all the time. Still to this day, they still use a lot of those same recordings. Oh, okay. Cool. I assume he's long since passed. Uh, actually, he might still be around. I didn't look it up, to be honest with you, uh, but I will real quick. All right. Title track of the record, last song in the album. Uh, I think that's actually pretty rare to have the title track, yeah. the last song. The song is the other song on the record that was completely written by ex-band member Eric Stefani and is a complete and total takedown of Disneyland. Uh, there is no <laughs> denying what he's talking about. The lyrics, uh, have they lost their heads or are they just all blind mice? Hypnotized by fireflies that glow in the dark and midgets that disguise themselves as tiny little dwarfs. The parade that's electrical, <laughs> it serves no real purpose, just takes up a lot of juice just to to impress us. I'm guessing he didn't like the Magic Kingdom so much. Yeah, right. I feel like he did when he was a kid. And then as he grew up, he started to see that it became this commercial. Got jaded. Yeah. Uh, Jack Wagner did pass away June 16th, 1985. Oh, wow. So, it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, weirdly, I think that was the same. I can't remember. Did I say the 15th or the 
16th was the night that they played Disneyland for you grad said night. June 15th. So it was the day after they played grad night, Jack Wagner died. Oh. And then three months later, <laughs> or four months later, they released, they released an this album that, album that had him down. on it. Interesting. Oh, that is interesting. This is what the sound, uh, this is what it sounds like. I feel like this is a fitting closer uh, and maybe uh, you move this right behind Don't Speak and end yeah. it with that one. You know, that would have been fine. Cut out the three, put this right behind Don't Speak. But either way, this is Tragic Kingdom. That was Tragic Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, fantastic album that it struck is. at just the right time. Stole 16 million copies, launched a huge career. Uh, I think it could have been even better with just a tick of editing, but it's neither here nor nor there. I love the <laughs> record. I still listen to it a couple times a year. Uh, I think it's great. But you need to tell us what you think about it. Yeah, please. You need get to get in touch. Right. Do you know how? I know how. Yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Facebook.com forward slash audio judo. Twitter, we are at audio judo. Uh, Instagram, we are at, at audio underscore judo. I always screw that one up for some reason. Uh, you can also email us directly, info at audio judo.com. That one is probably the most direct way to get in touch with us. And we do usually try to respond to those, although a lot of times they get lost in the mix. So if you don't hear back from us immediately, give us a few days. Mm-hmm. So we have episodes coming up from Talking Heads, mm-hmm. Marvel. Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. our annual holiday episode, and our mm-hmm. annual top 10 records of the year episode, and also Steve Ray Vaughn's on the docket. So please keep coming back. Yeah. Uh, and we will talk to you all again in two oh. what? Patri- oh, go patri- ahead. Patrons. Oh, you have your list. Yeah, I do. So uh, oh thank you so much to all of our patrons, as usual. Uh, shout it out loud here. Simon C., our UK consultant. Oh, that's uh, true. Yeah. Front row seats tier, uh, Michael A., Aaron P., Darlene W., thank you all so much. And our backstage pass tier, Michael S., Christian S., David W., and Scott K., Thank you to all of our patrons. We yes. do appreciate it. You buy us all the beers that keep us going to do these episodes. Except we're not drinking today. Except it's morning right now, so we're not drinking yet. Uh, other than that, we will talk to you all again in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Uh, bye-bye. Remain seated, please. Permanecer sentados, por favor. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.